Welcome, travelers. We're aware that your journey was difficult, but prepare to have your questions answered, for you have been granted an audience with the Masters of Modern. And welcome back to the Masters of Modern. I'm your host, Alex Kessler, here with my co-host, Ben Bateman. What's up, everybody? And today we have the wonderful Paul Rietzel on Skype joining us today. How's it going, Paul? Very well, guys. Nice to nice to meet you both, and nice to be here. I'm excited to uh, talk with you about about modern and and all sorts of things magic. Yeah, man. This is this is cool stuff. Um, I, you know, we we saw you last at uh, Grand Prix Vegas, and uh, it was cool to, to have this conversation over over a game of magic, and now to see it fully actualized. You're on the Masters of Modern podcast with us. A very very exciting day for us. Yep, long time coming. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, so we kind of want to talk to you about a few things today, maybe like team-sponsored magic, kind of your history as a pro player, uh, and then we do want to touch on your uh, Naya company deck that you did very well with recently uh, in a Modern Grand Prix. What was that, three weeks ago, something like that, four weeks ago? Something like that, yeah. It was uh, um, pretty recently in uh, in Charlotte. Yeah, that was, a, that was a, you, did you and Kibler play the same deck or closely, or was you and Sperling played the same Me deck? Me and Sperling, yeah. Yeah, Kibler, uh, I think it picked up Naya Company, dismissed it, and went with something else. And then uh, I developed this uh, Naya Company deck that, that Matt ended up playing as well. And I think he went 12-3. Uh, and three. Yeah, yeah, Collected Company is a powerful card. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> I'm a fan. I've been, I've been building with that card for a little while, so uh, it's exciting to, it's exciting to see it be successful. So let's... Let's kind of get into into you as a as a Magic pro. Um, I pulled up your old your article from TCG Player right after you won uh, Pro Tour Amsterdam back in 2010. Okay. Um, and it's a pretty lengthy article, but it's like it starts out with you with you just being like all. I think it was Paul Ritzel was known as a guy who put himself in position to lose important matches. Is how you started the article or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then you you know you give a bunch of examples of close matches, and then obviously the play by play of the win. Um, that was five years ago. Sort of how. How have you watched your magic career develop since uh, getting that monkey off your back? Well, I, you know, when, when when I won the Pro Tour in uh, 2010, up, up to that point, I played um, in a lot of, you know, Pro Tours, Grand Prix, high-level events, and I, I'd been in a position to, to do pretty well. Um, but I found myself losing matches pretty frequently towards the end of tournaments. And so, you know, really it wasn't until – 2009 2010 when i came back to the pro tour that i ever had any sustained significant success um since since winning the pro tour you know i uh um you know i have a full-time job you know magic is is more of a hobby of mine i'm I'm a a weekend warrior but but i kind of said to myself you know if if i'm gonna spend the time away from home away from my fiance and my cats and my bed uh, if I'm going to fly to these tournaments, I'm going to take it seriously and, and try to win. And, and um, the last uh, four or five years have been pretty good. And I've, I've um, you know, I've especially recently found myself with uh, some pretty um, consistent, solid success at the Pro Tour and Grand Prix circuit. That's awesome. How, how old were you when you got into Magic? What was like the? Where did you start? What was your set? Uh, so the, when I first started playing magic, I was nine and my first boosters were of revised, but the, the hot new set that had just come out was actually the dark, but I, I wasn't aware that it had come out yet. Did you open a maze of it at some point? I'm, sh- I'm sure that I did. Although, you know, the, when you're nine years old, the, the, the big controlling factor in your hobby, you know, pursuing hobbies is cost. And so, 
you know, I was mainly a, a, a purveyor of fourth edition in Fallen Empire. So you, could, you could open more cards that way per dollar than, than if you were trying to get the darker or revised boosters. The beauty is when you talk to those, the, you talk to people who are like, oh, I played Magic back in the day. The first thing you always ask is, okay, what year, what year was it? And if they're like yeah. 94, you're like, you've got money. If they're like 95, you're like, you probably have nothing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Unfortunately for me, it was like the end of 94. So, you know, already it was like hard to get revised boosters. Like they were you know, maybe $3 when I started playing. And by the end of that year, they were already like five or $6, which for a nine-year-old is, is prohibitive. I mean, that's, you're talking about an impossible barrier of entry. So. Well, especially back in the nineties. I mean, like now a bus ride costs a dollar 50, but back then it was like 25 cents and you can go right. you know, anywhere in the city. Yeah. And I actually, I, I never would have got into competitive magic except for, uh, you know, I had $15 to my name and the first Grand Prix uh, that I played was in 1998. Uh, so here I'm 12 or something like that. And I, I pre-registered for my last $15 for the Grand Prix. And if I had, <laughs> had to go to the door, the, the Grand Prix cost $18 and I wouldn't have been able to play. I would have had to borrow money. So any, uh, any stories from those, those early years, like the, the way back competitive magic scene that come to mind, like, I don't know, hall of famers you, you played or beat or lost against anything like that. Well, I mean, my first, my first sanctioned tournament was Grand Prix Boston in, in 1998 um, my first game ever sanctioned magic. I got a game loss. Uh, <laughs> I, I presented a 59 card deck nice. because I left my <laughs> pacifism in my friend's deck when we were playing before the tournament. Um, I also was playing against a, uh, a, a full, this is my first game ever of sanctioned magic. It's a full uniformed Marine was the guy I was playing. <laughs> wow. One of the Grand Prix. Yeah. And so the second game that we played, he gained, uh, infinite life mana, and uh and something else using an earthcraft workhorse uh spike feeder combo with recurring nightmare oh wow uh, so that was my introduction to magic and and uh actually a few rounds later i was i think i was three and two in the grand prix and i played against uh the, the man who won the first ever pro tour michael lecanto uh and i actually was fortunate enough to, to beat him in my very first tournament so of course i knew who he was and i was like you know starstruck and then you know right from there i was i was hooked I think it's really funny that the uh, magic is a, is this weird like subculture thing where you can actually sort of be starstruck if you're a magic player and you play against a magic pro, but it's such a subculture. It would be so difficult for any you know for anybody who doesn't play the game to pull any any magic player out of a lineup, right? I mean, in the history right. of the game. Yeah, I mean, we were trying to think like like where is I was having this conversation with John Finkel a couple of years back. Like, what list? is John Finkel. It's not an A-list celebrity or a B-list celebrity or a C-list. And we came up with like, he's like an AF level celebrity. <laughs> so, yeah, Domel is somewhere, but, but it's on, it's on the, uh, many tiers down. Well, he's like also known for that whole, the whole debacle with the girl he went on the date with that like wrote the article. And then like the whole entire, the entire nerd community rallied behind John Finkel and was like, he's the, he's the chosen one. <laughs> Who is this woman? Yeah. I mean, as, as often happens with, with situations like that, I think some people probably didn't acquit themselves as well as they would have hoped <laughs> if, uh, uh, if they could do it all over again. But I thought that John was extraordinarily magnanimous during that whole procedure. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, so, so, that's, so that's like the 90s. So then uh, how, long of, how long of a break did you take in Magic before you came back in 2009? Well, I think, uh, you know, as I started to to get deeper into college, it just started to become more difficult to, um, to go to the tournaments in such a way that I, I really had any chance whatsoever of, of doing well. Um, I, I, I skipped 
uh, a pro tour in Paris and a world championships in Japan, um, just because I knew I wouldn't be able to prepare and the flights were expensive. And this is before any, you know, players clubs or levels like that. And even if there were, I, I, I wouldn't have been a big enough level pro to, uh, um, to be a part of them. And, and, uh, you know, you skip a couple pro tours and then you don't prepare for the ones that you go to. And I, I kind of, uh, I fell off the pro tour. I think it was probably in, um, 2000, five or something like that um and i basically stopped playing competitive magic until 2009 um 2009 there was a grand prix in los angeles and um hall of fame contender mark herberholt sends me messages like i'm flying to la i'm staying with you and we're gonna play in this grand prix in oh, nice. la um and i had no idea that, that you know there was gonna be a grand prix until a week before but uh i ended up finishing like 10th in the grand prix and got back on the pro tour and uh haven't missed one since nice yeah that's uh so you missed you missed my favorite sets of all time then the uh the time spiral block that's like my favorite moment in magic you were uh, you were out of it for that stretch yeah i make sure to always hit them up when they're the old set drafts on magic online but that yeah that that that's a dark period for me i, I remember when i first uh kind of ran back into luis scott vargas on the pro tour and he was like a big time celebrity and i said <laughs> I, I remembered just him as lsv on magic online and i said hey you know like everyone knows your name now it's like well yeah i won the last uh the last pro tour and i'm like oh my god lsv won pro tour i just remember him as this this magic online guy and now he's the, the biggest superstar in the world <laughs> yeah that is funny that, that that transition to online magic has been so pronounced over the last few years um so all right so you you get back in 2009 2010 and the pro tour you won amsterdam that was the extended format right so that was yes. uh the now defunct uh debunked uh, extended which is sort of in a lot of ways become modern i mean that's right i mean a modern is the inheritor to the like eternal like eternal pro level format well i was looking at it like the deck you played at that pro tour and then like a lot yeah. of the decks you're up against there's a lot of modern cards in there i mean there's a ton of like yeah, the band decks. list is maybe the biggest difference between then and now I mean, there's a merfolk deck there was a jun deck it looked like there was something close to an abzan deck um a lot of the same a lot of the staples are in both though yeah Sure. Yeah, no, I mean, they've, they kind of went through a long period of time before they found modern where they were trying to come up with what's the best way to allow people to continue to play with their standard cards, but people who don't have dual lands. And, and that was, that was one of the many, many kind of iterations they came up with along the way, which was, I think they, it was double standard was the nickname they called it back then. Cause it, it was like the last, uh, uh, last four blocks plus the corresponding core sets. And, um, yeah, I mean, I guess you could really, I guess that was the, the, the father of, of modern, modern, to, excuse me phrase. Absolutely. Well, I mean that, uh, you know, that set of cards would ultimately go on to sort of become what, what formed the modern format. So back, right. back then, were you one of the players, like I guess most players, I think I was the same way where you guys would just play extended the season you had to, and otherwise nobody played extended. You know, that honestly, with me, me personally, I, 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 that's the way I play all formats. Oh, so, yeah, I mean, I am, uh, again, because of the way that I approach tournaments, I, I almost all of the magic I play, I would say over 95% of the magic I play is specifically geared towards tournament preparation. So, um, you know, right now I am basically just playing standard. Uh, you know, but before a modern tournament, I'm basically just playing modern. And that's because... I don't have enough disposable time to just kind of um, mess around. I mean, I'll do the occasional cube draft, but I gear almost all of my my magic playing towards getting ready for the next event. 
How much IRL Magic do you play versus uh, Magic Online? None. I, I never play Magic uh, in real life. The only tournament, the only time I ever play Magic with real cards are at Grand Prix and Pro Tours. Oh wow, that's uh, so you don't you don't like you do you own cards or you just get you borrow cards or, or Team Ultra Pro just gives you cards? No, it's it's a combination of things. So occasionally I will. You know, like with a set like Cons of Tarkir or like this one, like Magic Origins, I'll, I'll purchase the, the cards ahead of time because I figure, you know, the set's so juiced that I'm going to use these cards so much over the next year that it's worth my time. And, I, you know, I, I think it'll probably maintain a pretty good resale value. Um, you know, occasionally I'll, I'll try to borrow to fill in the holes and, and you know, I can obviously um, I have a, a nice network so I can access whatever cards that the, that I need. But. Now, I, I don't I don't maintain like there's no other way for me to collect cards other than to just purchase them. When you uh, are choosing a deck for a tournament, obviously if it's not a limited tournament, um, and you before Team Ultra Pro was a thing, like how do you how do you identify the deck you want to play? Is it just through testing? You're open to any kind of deck, or is there a style that you? I was under the impression you sort of gravitated towards aggressive decks. Is that true, or is that not true? It it is true to an extent. So. Uh, the answer to your question is that I do it by losing a lot. I, I play a lot of different, uh, I play a lot of different decks on magic online and I'll just keep losing and losing and losing and losing. And eventually I'll find a deck where I stop losing. And that's usually the deck that I settle on. Um, I, I do have a preference for aggressive decks, although I find that to be mostly manifested in, in pro tours as opposed to grand prix because pro tours are almost, uh, well, not almost. They are exclusively new and unexplored formats, and so they usually have envi- uh, uh, circumstances which more lend themselves towards proactive strategies uh, as opposed to trying to figure out what everyone else is doing and responding to that, which is, uh, um, I think, kind of a tough guessing game. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like, um, I'm a player who's much, much more... In- I brew a lot. That's sort of where I love to play Magic because I like to come up with the wonky things and combine largely bad cards to uh, try to make them good, which rarely works in the competitive <laughs> scene. Um, but I do recall a few years back, I think it, it was Avacyn Restored, I feel like, and there was a mm-hmm. Grand Prix, and I think you were playing an aggressive deck. I know it had Hellriders in it. can't remember if it was Mono Red or if it was, like, White Red or something. Yeah, it was, Bor- it was Boros uh, Humans with, uh, like, uh, Hell Riders and Strong Kirk Nobles was the deck. And I just remember watching, I think it was, like, I want to say it was, like, the semis or the quarters, and I just remember watching, and, and you mold the five, I think. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking at the hand, and you were, like, you were sitting there trying to wonder to keep it or not, and I just, I don't know, I, it's it struck me as, it's so, I, I realized I had such a hard time evaluating aggressive strategies versus sort of mid-range or controlling strategies or combo strategies they're all like way easier for me to wrap my head around but with aggro it's like just evaluating a mulligan seems so much more difficult because it's such a simple simple strategy Mm -hmm. um yeah i think that i think that uh uh aggressive decks reward um they reward repetition in practice a lot less than than control and combo decks do you know like you can you can just brute force play test to control or a combo deck until you recognize all the patterns and figure out what's important and know what to mulligan. Whereas aggressive decks, you're going to be like, you're going to be faced with um, different situations every single game. And you need to understand how to apply pressure and, you know, deny your opponent resources, deny them time. If that's the important resources every single game differently. So it's just, it tests a different, uh, different skill set. 
Do you, uh, with, the, with the new proposed mulligan rules that we're looking at, uh, you guys are going to be using over the weekend, actually, at the Pro Tour, um, as a largely, you know, player that, that preferences aggressive decks, how do you feel about that rule? Is that something that you think is going to benefit your strategy, your style? Uh, I, I don't think it necessarily benefits aggressive decks necessarily. Uh, it's probably a bad rule for me specifically because <laughs> I, I, I think that, uh, A, I, I was someone who I think gained some of my edge from good mulliganing decisions, and B, I tend to keep more hands than a lot of other higher level pros. And, and I think that maybe I will probably end up keeping too many hands given the new rules. I think that, that given the way standard is right now, most of the decks gain a little bit of consistency. And I think some of the decks like, you know, like a mid range Abzan deck will lose a little bit of e equity with the new Mulligan rules, just because part of their, you know, built in systemic edge was in kind of doing the same thing consistently every game. And now, other decks are going to be able to do that a little bit more, but it's, I, I wouldn't overestimate the impact. It's really kind of a smaller impact than people are kind of making it out to be. How do you feel about uh, wizards? Like really addressing, uh, I guess just largely changing the game, changing the infraction rules, changing things like mulligans. I mean, uh, do you think that the game is in a pretty healthy place or do you think there's always a lot of room to improve for this game? Well, I mean, I think that when, when it comes to those sorts of things that the, the, um, organized play changes, changes to the rules, uh, uh, things like the new mulligan rule or the new combat rules. Um, I think that they've, they have a pretty good track record of, of thinking through these decisions and understanding their implications before going public with them that, that I'm at this point, you know, I'm almost 30 years old. I, I'm, I tend to not, you know, be the sky is falling chicken little type when they, when they come out with these decisions. So, um, it's, it's funny, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, like this rule, right. The, the new mulligan rule, I mean, on its face, it is blatantly just good for, for the highest level of player. It's good for the better players. It's bad for worse players because you're going to, you're going to reduce the variance in the game. You're going to reduce the amount of non games. And those are the games in which worse players would have the better chance of beating the better players. And yet, people who are more you know, amateur or casual players have come out and they love the rules. They love the fact that there's going to be less non-games of magic. So if, if the people that it's the worst for like the rule change, it's probably a pretty good sign that, that you know, Wizards is pretty well attuned to where they should be going with magic and, and the rules. Yeah, I think it's a pretty clever, I think it's a pretty clever addition just based simply on the fact that like, it, scry anything is always awesome i mean it's just great you put that on a card it's like oh this card's immediately better so it just makes every game of magic better it feels like um speaking of speaking of rule changes to recent magic i actually and you mentioned that you kind of play exclusively uh magic the gathering online how do you feel about the new changes to magic the gathering online that wizards just kind of announced this morning yeah, I mean, I haven't had a chance to fully digest it from a uh, from like a mathematical EV standpoint. Um, I, you know, I know that the current model was completely unsustainable. I, I, I tweeted that, you know, basically, um, you know, pretty soon after a set comes out, the heads up cues become unplayable because there is no win rate that you can maintain to break even in them. So they 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 really shouldn't fire unless someone is not considering their own rational self-interest. So. Um, you know, th they had to do something, um, you know, ultimately in order for this, this new economic model to make sense, they're going to need to tether 
to anchor these uh, play points to some sort of tangible thing that you can get with them besides just entry to tournaments. You know, I think people suggested some sort of a prize wall or something like that. And I think that right. we're, we're still sort of waiting for the all the details to shake out. But but I, I in general, I'm just pro action, I guess, when, when it comes to the Magic Online economy, because it just was, it's, it's it already been broken. Yeah, exactly. So, so. to kind of explain, explain to everyone out there on the internet what happened uh basically magic gathering online uh, used to just reward packs and it was generally high ev if you won but you know it was unsustainable based off of just pack economy for how sets would come out eventually eventually they become worth less than it's actually worth playing in these two mans or eight mans for constructed specifically and recently what they're doing is you're getting less packs so when you win a tournament you only get two packs versus eight but you also get x amount of these pr uh, player points that allow you to buy into new tournaments just using those points. And so if you win one of these things, you now get enough points to play in two. If you lose, you get like five points. So like four losses equal one free tournament. So the idea is to encourage constructed play on Moto. And I mean, anything that makes Moto better is probably better for in the long run, since that is probably one of the biggest glaring misses that Wizards is going through right now. Well, I think that's what you said is true to an extent. I don't think that this is designed to to encourage people to play constructed on Magic Online. I think the biggest issue, um, or the, what exacerbated already, you know, systemic issues in the Magic Online account, uh, economy, is that people were playing tons of constructed on Magic Online and not drafting enough. And what that did was create lots of sealed booster packs that never got opened, which flooded the economy with them and crash the prices. So you were ending up with heads up queues that cost two tickets to enter and paid one pack that was worth 1.71 tickets. And, you know, I mean, obviously, like I said, that's, if that's an insane thing, you can't, I mean, when you're talking about four tickets of buy-in between the two players paying out a total of 1.71 tickets and prizes, that's a off the charts rake. And so, you know, like I said, they're, they're trying to rejigger re the numbers a little bit to come up with a different, economic system i i don't know if this fixes any of the kind of root problems but you know they had to try something so as a guy who you're on team ultra pro now what they're what's their like 18 or 20 of you guys on the team is that about right uh i think that's about right we probably have uh somewhere in the 16 to 18 mark uh that are qualified and going to uh the next pro tour in vancouver so that's a that's a pretty big step um organized team play from companies that aren't i mean you know that's um that don't just sell magic cards from an outside sponsor. Uh, so being on a team like that and preparing for a tournament like this, you obviously are pretty aware of the landscape of the game as a streaming, as a streaming, like a, what's, what am I looking for? As a streaming platform and magic coverage compared to say other esports, right? Like League of Legends and things like that. You guys have talked sure. about this, I'm sure. Sure. So where do you kind of see the next, uh, the next iteration of this going? I mean, do you think that the streaming numbers improving and viewership being higher than ever is just going to continue and we're just trending up? I mean, how does it compare to a game like League of Legends or something else like that? Well, I mean, the the, the, the issue with comparing to League of Legends is that uh, Magic coverage, and specifically coverage of high-level play, high-level tournaments, is specifically geared and, and attractive to people who are already deeply enfranchised players. And it's oftentimes very difficult to get any interest level or enthusiasm to sit down and watch eight hours of Grand Prix coverage, for example, from someone who's played Magic for six months, or you know maybe the kind of person who spends a thousand or two thousand dollars a year on it. 
Whereas, you know, League of Legends, because of the, the visual, you know, anchoring of the sport and the fact that, you know, there are things exploding and noises and whatever, um, you know, you can, it's, it's more kind of base level um, entertaining, you know, then sometimes you just watch a magic game and nothing happens for a minute. You just want to shake the screen, like what the heck is going on? Um, I, I, I don't know, you know what I mean? I, I've never been a big streamer and, you know, I've, I've never, you know, tried to rely on, on magic or magic online as any part of my own personal, um, personal income. I, I know that there are people that are really enthusiastic about, about the future and I think it'll continue to grow, but, but it would take, um, it would take some kind of sea change moment, some paradigm shift for there to be a, an exponential growth event in magic online interest or magic uh, viewership interest, I think. So with, um, with like the number of, of you guys who are, you're, I think you're currently the sixth ranked player in the world. Is that right? Jeez. I don't, I don't know that, that, that could be right. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, working on a pro magic team. I mean, what does that mean? How is it like what, I guess, you know, just talk to sort of our audience for a minute. Like, you sixth or 25th or 50th ranked in the world. I mean, it's that's there's 26 million players or something like that. So if you're in the top 50, the top 10, and you're on a pro team, what does that look like? Yeah, so, so um, with Team Ultra Pro, and, and, and before Team Ultra Pro, I, I played with uh, Team Channel Fireball uh, Pantheon. Um, basically it's a collaborative work environment that we use to bounce ideas off of each other and play test exclusively um, for upcoming tournaments. In, in the case of Team Ultra Pro, um, you know, what that means is that we have a team forum and, and a team Facebook group um, where we seek out, you know, play test opponents, where we're posting deck lists, where people are commenting and replying to the comments and, and questioning. And it's, it's kind of a uh, uh, an iron sharpens iron environment or, or theory where you know hey you know like I, i'm gonna post a deck list and i'm gonna have you know patrick chapin and ben stark and sam black and you know all these people rip it to shreds and it's kind of like you know presenting a dissertation you know what i mean if, if i can defend my deck list against the dissertation and then play it against all their best decks there's a pretty good chance that we have a, a deck that's pretty playable for the uh for the tournament and uh and we use other other tools like you know google hangout um, what if we have Google Hangout meeting tomorrow about Magic Origins, uh, Origins Limited, where, you know, it's it's not much different than being in a boardroom or a conference room and just kind of discussing and trying to, to share knowledge to to become greater than we would be individually. Is the dynamic on Team Ultra Pro significantly different than the dynamic that you experienced on Channel Fireball or does it team to team is pretty similar? Uh, yeah. The dynamic, I don't know if the dynamic is different so much as our process is different. You know, Ch Channel Fireball Pantheon arrived in Vancouver today. Um, you know, they're, so they're going to be there in kind of the, the boot camp uh, in the house environment for the next uh, whatever it is, you know, 12 days before before the Pro Tour. They're going to skip Grand Prix Dallas. And they're just going to focus on getting ready for this uh, for this Pro Tour. Um, our team, you know because we have a lot of people that have full-time jobs and, and are, you know, you know, maybe more um, viewing magic as a serious hobby than a profession. You know, we use a lot of online collaborative tools, a lot of communication, um, you know, playing online, that sort of thing. And then we'll probably meet up, you know, maybe a few days before the tournament in Vancouver to do last second preparation, as opposed to, uh, uh, you know, renting a house out in the middle of nowhere to, um, to isolate ourselves. 
Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your collected company deck, man. I, I think uh, I think you know, it's a modern deck and uh, it's a modern podcast, and you did very well with it recently. So I think it'd be kind of a fun deck tech to do. Sure. Um, all right. So it's it's basically a a Naya Zoo deck that plays collected company, right? That's the premise. Most efficient, like uh, burn and removal with efficiently costed creatures and four copies of collected company. Yeah, I mean that's 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 basically in a nutshell. And and uh, the idea is that uh, it it adds a sorely missing dimension of both um, an instant speed attack as well as a card advantage element to what was otherwise a, a pretty good, consistent, proactive deck that was just kind of missing that element. Do you think, um, I mean, okay, so a four mana creature at instant speed that is playable in modern is Restoration Angel. That's a very sure. good card, right? And you wouldn't play Restoration Angel in a in a Naya deck or in a Zoo deck necessarily. Mm -hmm. Though I'm sure people have tried. Um, do you think that the value of two versus one is so great that it sort of just, uh, that's what, I mean, it's hard It's hard to sort of wrap my head around why Collective Company is in fact so good, even though it's been proven and I've played it and enjoyed it myself. When it was printed, I didn't look at it and my head didn't explode. You know what I mean? It seemed pretty good, but it seems so much better than that when you play it. Right. Well, if you look at the history of modern, basically through, through the, be the very beginning of the format, Four mana has really been that key mana cost, right? Where, um, especially if you're going to try to be doing something with the creature type, um, it either needs to have flash uh, or come into playability at 187 ability or it needs to protect itself. Um, there are some very, very rare ex exceptions. I mean, occasionally Jund is played like an Olivia or two. Occasionally uh, Hero of the Bladehold back in the day people used to play, but... but um, really needs to have one of those three things. Um, with with the case of Collected Company, obviously you have the the uh, the flash aspect, um, which sometimes even adds uh, the come into playability aspect. You know, because you can sometimes ambush a creature that's attacking you or or something of that nature. Um, I, I think that the, the the thing we talk about card Collected Company is that it's difficult to make any sort of generalizations because it functions so differently in each of the different decks that want to utilize it. Um, you know, in our case, uh, or, in, or in the case of the Naya Zoo deck, the point is to put out like 10 power at instant speed or eight power at instant speed and just overwhelm them with things that, that their removal can't handle. But obviously it's been used in combo decks and, and uh, merfolk decks and, and all sorts of different stuff. So um it has many, many different applications. So let's talk a little bit about some of the cards that really jump out in the list. Um, I'm assuming the one bird of paradise is just the fifth noble hierarch, right? That's that's uh, that's the choice yeah. there. Yeah, we had another. I had another land for a while, and you know, it just. Uh, I, I just I I've been moving back and forth between another land and, and the birds of paradise and. And uh, yeah, they just it's the fifth noble hierarch because it's more explosive. So the whole the whole like get down a mana creature on turn one and then resolve like a smiter or a knight on turn two. That's that's sort of that or a nakadal on turn one is what you want, correct? Correct. Yeah, that, these those are the best sort of proactive. If they stumble, they're in big trouble type draws that you can have. How do you now, nowadays? Like, there's so many decks that interact with the graveyard in modern, um, both like Goryeo's Vengeance or the uh the company combo deck i mean it's the graveyard's a pretty massive part of the format do you feel like because of the awareness of that you know the, the number of oozes that get played do you think tarmogoyf is maybe not as powerful as it once was in modern or do you think it's just every bit as good as it as, it, as always has always been 
I definitely think it's it's not as good as it once was, but but I mean you're talking about uh, you know the baseline being it was the best car, you know, so or or very close <laughs> to it. You know? yeah, yeah. So um, you know now it's just like a really good card. Um, you know there are certainly games in which they're able to keep your Tarmogoyf under control or in which, you know, it's, it's, you know, not the most efficient thing you can be doing, but there are plenty of games in which it's just a four or five immediately, you know? Um, and in those games, you know, it's, it's, it, it just, it just blacks out the sun in terms of curve efficiency. And, and uh, I mean, especially in a deck like this, which is already playing a bunch of big, stupid, dumb monsters, not playing the single most efficient one would be the criminal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you famously, in, in that article you wrote for TCG Player, talk about the breakthrough that you had the night before the tournament where you realized you needed to play four Relic of Progenitus against the Tarmogoyf deck, right? That's the right. Uh, that's the story. So I, I definitely think that uh, over time, uh, you know, Graveyard, the Graveyard becoming more important is actually worse for Tarmogoyf, right? Well, yeah, I mean, like Scavenging Ooze right now is one of the most one of the better, most prolific answers to Tarmogoyf that most decks, especially ones playing Tarmogoyf, even play main deck because it helps them answer Tarmogoyfs, it helps them answer Tassigers, it helps them deal with the stupid combo decks like Goryo's Vengeance, not to mention Snapcaster. There's so many cards. Like, the graveyard in Modern is as much a part of the resource chain as your hand is in other formats, almost. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so, looking over the lands here, you've got uh, one Horizon Canopy, which is cool. I mean, I, I, I love that card. Uh, you have one Keswick Wolf Run, and these, I'm assuming the one-ofs are because you have four Knight of the Reliquary in here? Yes, that's correct. Um, how important of a card was Keswick Wolf Run to this deck? Oh, it was, I mean, it was it was huge for me. Um, and I know, talking to Matt, so, you know, anecdotally, um, he said it won him multiple games that no other card in Magic could have won for him. So, um, you know, very, very frequently uh, in Modern, people have just like a random hierarchy sitting around or they're going to, you know, block with block your 7-7 uh, uh, your seven, seven Night of the Reliquary with a Man Land or, or whatever the case is. And uh, Night of the Reliquary simultaneously um, allows you to, to, to jump over those threats with trample it allows you to go wide when you're when you're getting a volume of creatures in play with collected company to kind of pump up the one that they don't have an answer for um and it it, it's your your best mitigation for uh, it's your best flood insurance you know it's you know make make so that if you have six lands out and you sack one of them and go get a a kessick wolf run all of a sudden you're, you're getting a value out of that sixth or seventh land that you're drawing so um we, we Sam Black actually, and we talked about maybe having scarred rage pits for for some period of time, but but uh, ultimately um, the upside of Wolf Run was just too good. It, it, it's overperformed for us. So what would you say some of the like flaws for this deck was? What are the kind of the roadblocks that you ran into during the GP and moving forward? What kind of things would you th- think that this deck would have trouble with? So I lost two matches, one of which was to my own idiocy and then the other one was to just red green tron which is just uh inherently i think probably a slightly bad matchup i I mean obviously game one is is fairly hopeless because they're just going to be able to uh between worm coil engine and oblivion ring and ursa oblivion stone rather and all the different uh cards that are a nightmare for us we just it's very difficult for us to win game one when we can't interact with their lands 
And then game two, you know, it's we're going to have to try to find one of those ways to mess with their their Urzatron or, or we're going to lose that one too. So I, the, the big mana decks, whether it's Urza, Urza uh, Red Green Tron or uh, uh, Amulet Bloom, those are going to be kind of more difficult matchups. Um, and then, uh, you know, other than that, you, you have pretty good game against all the mainstream sort of decks. I mean, every now and then someone's going to show up with something like Storm or Ad Nauseam or something like that, which are just an abysmal matchup for you. But, but like, we played the deck assuming that those would be more fringe-type decks than, than heavily played. What are the different processes you go through? Like, what kind of different choices would you make picking a deck for a Pro Tour versus picking a deck for a GP? Well, um, uh, yeah, I know you mentioned, uh, I think Ben mentioned that you're, you're more of a brewer at heart and I'm, I'm very much the opposite. I'm, I'm much more of a tuner at heart. So th the way in which I most enjoy, you know, magic is to look at all the decks that are succeeding, look at the metagame, at, you know, as a whole and try to figure out, okay, what's a good way to approach this? What beats what other people are doing? You know, how do I take maybe one of these, you know, well-performing decks and, you know, mess with the mana base or add a card people haven't thought of or move some numbers around in order to make it, um, you know, more to my liking and more appropriate for a tournament. And that sort of approach is very effective for Grand Prix because they're, they're frequently established formats that have been iterated, uh, no pun intended, ad nauseum. Uh, and, you know, you know, basically, uh, you know, all of the decks are known and, and very infrequently do completely brand new archetypes just emerge at the Grand Prix level. Um, so I like to pick an established deck and give it my own kind of kind of tweak. Um, for, for Pro Tours, you know, um, if I'm going to be completely honest, it's, it's super important for me to be a part of a, a high-level team. I think I wouldn't have had nearly the success that I've had without having that sort of support structure because... I rely on the, the Patrick Chapins and the Gabriel Nassifs and the Sam Blacks of the world to put together these these shells. And then my expertise is to is to pick them and to try to sharpen them and to figure out what their weaknesses are and work on the sideboards and the 58th and 59th and 60th cards. Because if, if, if I were faced with the task of trying to brew a new deck in two weeks for a Pro Tour, I would never do well. Your your list here, the collective sure. company. I misspoke earlier when I said four collective company. You played three. How long did it take in testing to establish that three collective company was correct instead of four? Actually, if you look at um, you know, if you look at some of the decks that have been doing well in Magic Online that, that were playing collective company with Wild Nakato, a lot of them actually had two. Um, so my, the, actually, one of my the first things that I changed was to was to try out a third and a fourth collective company. Um, the issue with the collective company is that is that uh, uh, there's, two, well, there's two main issues. The first one is that is obviously the mana cost. You're playing a deck that is a beatdown deck on a fundamental level. So if you draw multiple collected companies, it's probably going to interfere with your curve in the early turns of the game. Um, and the second thing is that it's it's the opportunity cost, right? Like if you assume that you have to lock in four bolt and four path because of the most effective uh, removal suite available to your to your color combination. And if you assume that your lands are locked in stone, then then you the fourth collected company is going to have to cut a creature, which is then going to decrease the effectiveness of your collected company. So, um, you know, it's it, I tried four for a little while. I settled on three. I don't have a high confidence, you know, 
I don't have a high level of confidence that that's the right number, and it's, it's certainly possible that you could put in a fourth, but that's kind of where we settled for that tournament. All right, so normally we take these decks and put them through a kind of a, de- a, a best of the format gauntlet. So I'm going to throw some decks out to you, and if you can kind of break down how you would handle playing against those decks using the sideboard and how the deck plays in general to kind of how you would beat it, or if it's just a bad matchup and you'd try dodging it using sure. the power of pairings. We'll just roll through like four or five of them. <laughs> uh, so for, to kind of represent aggro, uh, Affinity. Yeah, Affinity is a uh, not a great matchup game one. Um, obviously, we have four Bolt, four Path, three Pride Mage, and the collective companies that can that can reach them. So we we can certainly fight, but it's uh, disadvantageous game one. Um, you know, obviously games two and three, we we stocked our sideboards with Katakis and, and uh, uh, Stony Silence and Bonfire of the Damned, and it becomes very 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 favorable post board. Um, you know, overall in a three-game match, it's a, it's a deck that we would like to face in the tournament because of how strong our sideboard is. And I think I was two two or three and zero against Affinity in the Grand Prix, so uh, it's a good matchup. Um, moving next, uh, mid-range control shell. So Jund and or Abzan. Uh, slightly different. Both I would say are are favorable. Jund is is more favorable than uh, than Abzan. Um, but, uh, but, you know, in, in both, you know, you're, you're talking about, um, being able to kind of get under them by being a more fast and aggressive beatdown deck, but then we can get over them with, uh, with collected companies. So, um, I, I was undefeated against both those decks in the Grand Prix. I have very, very good records against them, um, online, um, decks that you definitely would, uh, would want to face in the tournament. Um, surprisingly enough. Thalia is actually a pretty effective sideboard card against both of them because they they usually when they see that you're playing a Nakatl Knight of the Reliquary deck they turn into like a pure control removal deck and Thalia can be super super annoying. All right, uh, Tempo Combo with Twin. Yeah, that's a, a really good matchup. Uh, so um, the the thing about Twin decks historically against these sorts of of Nyazu decks is that they they don't handle the pressure very well when their creatures are unable to enter combat with your creatures and like when you're putting a turn two smiter out you know they're going to be forced to like blow their their deceiver exarchs to just kind of buy their turn of tapping down a uh, a smiter um you know exalted is a great way to force through damage you have plenty of removal between full and path to handle their creatures and then obviously you've got the um, pride mage as well to keep them off the off the combo so um def- you know obviously it's twin you know it's one of the the pillars of the format and they can obviously always beat you if you have a bad draw or you just or if they just go for it and you don't have a removal spell but it's definitely a favorable matchup all right uh control so the either the tron and or the grixis lists or blue, uh, or, or blue white red i mean yeah the okay family. well those are all three different matchups. Different. The, <laughs> the the Grixis deck is is a, is the is the single best matchup for this deck. So Patrick Patrick, who played Grixis to also a thirteen and two record, said that he went like something like zero and thirteen playtesting against Naya Company during his uh, before the tournament games. So Grixis is the deck that you want to play against. All all different kinds of Grixis. Um, red, white, blue. So, like, the Snapcaster Lightning Helix deck is, is actually a poor matchup. That's not a deck that you want to face. You do not want to be getting your Nicodles Snapcaster Helix. So, um, yeah, you, you're definitely hoping if they if they lead with the Steam Vents that their next turn is a Polluted Delta. 
All right, and last but not least, the non-interactive combo, so uh, Amulet. Yeah, so again, you know, this is another, these are bad matchups. Uh, 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 you do not want to play against the big mana decks. You do not want to play against Amulet. Um, the, the problem is that uh, we're, not a, we're not an all-in pure beatdown deck. We have enough of a mid-range element with Knight of the Reliquary and Smiter that we allow them too much time to kind of set up. So we're going to be heavily reliant on getting one of our um, mess with all of your non-basic lands cards post-board and try to steal steal those games from them. But, but definitely a, a matchup that we want to fade. Okay. All right. What do you and the most unfair deck in the format right now seems to be the Goro's Vengeance deck. That's the one that everybody's talking about. Is like that's the banning deck. Uh, have you played against it very much? You know, what? I don't even know what's in it honestly because <laughs> because it wasn't it didn't really exist on Magic Online prior to the Grand Prix. And I haven't played a game of uh, Modern since uh, Grand Prix Charlotte. So, uh, you know, I, I, my my gut feeling is that it's a bad matchup. Although we do have enough ways to get kind of an ooze out pretty quickly that, that maybe there's some chance of, of competing with it. But but I would guess it's not favorable. But I'm, I don't know. All right, great. So before we get into the the ending of everything, I do want to remind everyone because we generally do we ask everyone on Twitter a question and they send us answers to it. So uh, to remind everyone, our, our Twitter is at the MMCast. I said, <laughs> what card is going to see the most play at Magic Origins in general from Standard? Uh, so first we have uh, at Jeffrey Murphy. He said Nissa, and it's not going to be close. Should be pretty good. <laughs> uh, next, Alex Hallowenen. I'm not. I'm, <laughs> his at Alex is banana man. Way easier to say. <laughs> Demonic pact because it'll be hilarious. I, I mean, I've seen people trying to mess with the deck a card. I don't. I don't get it. It looks cool. I mean, it'll be funny. <laughs> I don't know. Um, Richard Blakely. I'm gonna have to say Chandra because you can get her out uh, by turn three and easily deal damage in fast red decks. All right. Chris Connery, the new Jace. Just. Period. I don't think the new Jace is good. Uh, actually, I played a cube with him recently, and yeah. that was my like first experience playing with him. And he bought back like four heroes downfall. Wow! Throughout the game, I mean, yes, it was like a, a like a longer tournament, but like just getting twice is pretty pretty good card advantage do plus have, the trigger. Do you have any strong opinions on any of the new planeswalkers, Paul? Well, you know. I, I do, but but uh, you know it's it's difficult to give too much information because we're yeah, kind yeah, of in for testing period. I I will answer the question though if you're interested in what I, what card I think we'll see the most play from the new set. All right, go for it. Yeah, my personal opinion is languish. I think that that's the that is the card that's going to see the most play. I think that uh, um, Magic Origins it's, it's like. As if I needed another reason to play Siege Rhino and Tassinger, they printed uh, they printed Languish. So um, I, I I look forward to having all of my creatures destroyed by Languish many many times. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, well, I would say that pretty much wraps us up yep. for the day. Um, we want to thank you so much for coming by. This was this was an awesome conversation we got to have. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we, as I just mentioned, we are at the MMCast. I am at Kess Wiley, and I'm at Ben Bateman Media. Paul, where can the folks find you? Uh, you can find me at, at Paul Rietzel. If you can spell my last name, you will find me there. Was it? It's I E T Z L. I E T Z L. That is correct. And, and we'll and we'll make sure if you go to rocketjump.com, you can see the links to your Twitter, and we'll probably post the deck list from today, and maybe the article Ben mentioned. And uh, always, and we kind of don't always say this, but make sure to check out our sister podcast, The Command Zone. They do awesome commander content. You guys should go check them out. They're the best. 
Uh, and yeah, so that's it. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks so much for coming by, Paul. Thanks, guys. Thank you for your attention. For further inquiries, send an email to the MMCast at rocketjump.com. See you later, alligator. <laughs>